Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we ascribe all glory to the Lord, we realize we need to confess our sins to do that. So we turn to the scriptures and they call us to confess. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we'll read. This is, again, as last week, this is one of the proof texts from the Heidelberg Catechism that we'll read later. Heidel, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Thus far the reading of God's word. The catechism this morning is going to remind us of our sinful nature. It's a difficult truth, but it's a true one. We are sinful from the moment we are conceived. We inherit that nature from Adam and Eve. And without God's grace, we will not ever choose to do good. Even the natural affection that parents have for their children, for example, is instilled in us by God's grace. Any good that we do, we need to credit God for. Now, there's an, uh, a counterbalancing truth that we also have the Spirit with us now as regenerate uh, believers, uh, showing us how to obey and helping us to please God. And that's also true. We need to remember that. Corinthians chapter 9. That'll be my sermon text today. This is God's word. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray for illumination this morning. Thanks, Father, for your words. Pray that we will be illuminated by them. You give us your spirit, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive all that your law contains. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So I chose this passage this morning for multiple reasons. Um, my, my job, my goal, my, uh, my, my task this morning is to edify Christ Church Livingston County. And so I want to bring a word that will edify you and will build you up. At the head of household meeting later today, we're going to consider the church budget for the next year. And although I couldn't find the word budget in the Bible, it's not there in the concordance, um, I thought this was a good enough passage to relate to that kind of meeting and that kind of, uh, that kind of day in, a, in the life of a church. So let me clearly state up front what I think this passage is saying to us. Four things. A faithful Christian church cannot exist without faithful Christians who give. It's just not possible. God has not designed the world that way. So when you give money to a faithful church or a mission project, it is tantamount to you giving your money to God himself. That's clear from this passage and other scriptures. Number three, a faithful Christian, I'm sorry, as a faithful Christian, you don't have the right to avoid giving. Remember, it's not whether, but which. It's not whether or not you'll give, it's which person or which God you will give to. And then finally, the Bible clearly teaches us that faithful giving is the habit of the righteous man. That's what Psalm 112 is all about, that we sang and then read, and then Paul quotes from in this passage. We'll get to that in a while. So Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 9 is expansive beyond the subject of giving, and it goes into the whole concept of what Christian maturity looks like. That's really his point in this passage. Paul's ethic, Paul's hermeneutic, if you want to use that word, goes beyond the immediate context of this gift that he's going to collect or that these men that come with the letter are going to collect on behalf of another church. It goes beyond that into what kind of man, what kind of person does God approve of? What kind of behaviors does he participate in? What does it look like to be a righteous man? What does maturity in Christ yield when it comes to actions? The Bible draws a straight line from your heart to your hands. Does it all the time. Christian maturity is inward and outward. It's an inward and outward work of grace in the life of the believer. If you have a changed heart, you will behave differently. You will behave as a changed person. True religion begins in the heart, but if it is true religion and it's true and good and beautiful, it will come out in your daily life, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your entire body. Paul's point, worshiping Christ 
in all areas he claims dominion over is the behavior of the righteous man. So much by way of introduction. Let's dig into the passage. In verse 1, let me start by saying before verse 1, in the previous chapter, chapter 8, Paul is admonishing the Corinthians to use their abundance to ease a lack that consists of financial poverty and famine in a different church. And I believe most scholars believe it's the church in Jerusalem. They were going through some kind of hardship at this time. And Paul was gathering up money, funds, from all the churches that he had planted and ministered to and was going to bring them back to Jerusalem as a love offering for them to help them. And so chapter 8 is all about that. And he talks about sending them Titus in order to gin up this love for this other church and to collect this gift. And now in verse 9-1, he says, it's superfluous for me to keep going about this topic. But he does. He goes for another whole chapter on this. I know you're ready to give, he says. I've boasted about your readiness to these other churches in Macedonia. But that zeal Paul boasts about even stirred up those Macedonian churches to give. So he's going beyond and he's, he's continuing to exhort and to admonish. Seems strange, but there's a reason for it. Look at verse 3. I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. It's kind of an odd way to talk. I've been boasting about how ready you are to give, and now I'm going to send some brothers to you and write a letter to you and spend two chapters of that letter writing to you that you give the gift. I said you were going to give it. I'm going to make sure you're going to give it. It's kind of a strange way to talk. He's being very pastoral here, I think. He doesn't want to just assume that last year's message when he was present with them in the body has stuck all the way through till now and will stick all the way through the next year when he comes back. He's being very careful here. He's being very fatherly, let's say. Paul wants to avoid a shameful situation in verse 4. I'll read that again. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready to give, we would be humiliated to say nothing for you because we've been so confident in your gift. So Paul wants to avoid this situation where he comes back to Corinth and some of these Macedonian believers whom he's been boasting about or boasting to about the Corinthians come with him and then he finds, oh, all of a sudden I've been boasting in vain. They're not actually ready to give this gift. Verse 5, these brothers that Paul are sending, we can assume that these are the people who actually carried this letter to the Corinthian church. These brothers are not only coming to deliver the letter, but they're also come, coming to arrange for this gift to be collected. That's what he said in verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have, been prom that you have promised. So that maybe so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. There's a word. Not as an exaction. Paul greatly desires that this gift that's going to be given be given in a certain manner. Don't miss that. He spends a lot of time on that. He spends a lot of energy and effort on the details of how the gift is going to be given. 
He wants the gift already collected. He wants it collected willingly. And he, does not want, he doesn't want it taken as an exaction. I'm gonna, let me read verse 5 from the New King James. I think it better brings this out. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul's being very specific what he wants and what he's leading them to do. There's a difference to Paul between an obligation met and a gift given. Don't miss that. That difference and why it matters is the crux of the entire rest of this passage. The rest of the chapter, in other words, is an explanation of this very point Paul is making. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The sparingly faithful will see God's sparing response. But God isn't a miser. He's not a spendthrift. He's not a fuss budget. That's my favorite word in the English language. Fuss budget. Neither should you be. But God's people often are. And therefore, since they are those things, miserly, spendthrifty, fuss budget, they imagine him to be the same way in their diminished capacity, in their diminished imagination. Worship, in other words, affects your imagination. That's why it's important to come each week. You've heard the phrase, I suppose, you become like what you worship. Right so. Believe it. Preach it. But there's an also another truth on the flip side of that. You, what you've become is what you imagine in your worship. In other words, if you're, if you're imagining and worshiping a god that is miserly, you're going to become a miser. You're worshiping the wrong god. You're worshiping a false god. He's a god of your tainted imagination. Thank you for that Heidelberg Catechism. That applies well. Our minds are affected by sin. Our imaginations are affected by sin. We grow up into beings that can see God who he truly is when we worship God rightly. Who is God truly? He's a benevolent father. Right worship of the one true God redeems and heals our imagination. Have you ever met somebody who grew up fatherless and you're trying to witness to them, trying to tell them about the love of God, and they just can't imagine it because they didn't have a good father? That happens. That's especially true in our country, in our world right now. They can't imagine this good, benevolent, heavenly being who's a father of us all, who gives generously because they didn't have a father that did that so god would have us grow up into his bountiful glory and paul wants the corinthians to grow up into god's bountiful glory therefore paul gives them a year's head start on this gathering of his gift verse 7 each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now you and I, if you're Christian as long as I've been, I assume you've heard that verse quoted all your life, or at least that last phrase. But think about the context now of what Paul's really saying. God loves a cheerful giver, as opposed to God does not love 
or does not approve of the miserly, angry, debt-slavish giver, the one who gives out of obligation. That's not what God wants. That's not what God is asking for. That's not the heart that he's looking to produce in you. Why? Why must the heart decide first before we give? Because the redeemed heart is where generosity issues from. You can give out of obligation. You can give out of a debt, out of owing a debt to the Lord and be completely wrong in your heart. The same amount of money comes out of your wallet and into the offering plate, let's say, or the offering box. But the heart is wrong, and therefore the gift is wrong. That's what, that's what Paul and God is saying here. The heart must decide to be generous. Generosity comes from the heart. An un, unregenerate heart can give, but only begrudgingly or by compulsion. Like, like this, if I don't give what I said I would give, I'll look bad. What's the heart condition there? That's pride. That's hypocrisy. I'm only giving so that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, in other words. The word that's translated uh, uh, cheerful is the Greek word hilaros. Can you, can you imagine what English word comes from that? Hilaros. It only appears one time in the entire New Testament. Hilaros. God loves a hilaros giver. A prompt, a willing, a merry, or a hilarious giver. And what happens if God finds a giver like that? What does God promise? What does God do? Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now that's probably the most packed verse in this entire chapter. There's so much in there. First of all, God is able. What is he able to do? Read the verse carefully. What he's saying is true about God. God can give you what he's requiring of you. God requires a generous heart, yes? God can give you that generous heart. In fact, that's the only way you're going to have a generous heart. You're not going to be able to gin up generosity in your own strength. God is gracious and able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in all things at all times may abound in every good work. Why do we do good works? Because God's grace is shed abroad in our hearts. God's grace abounds to us. He's the, he's the, he's the source of all goodness in us. God can give you what he requires of you. God's grace to you can grant that you have a sufficient storehouse of generosity in your heart to give others. Without him, you can't do that. Now, this can be taken in multiple ways. God is able to, to give you all the money you need to give. God is able to give all the grace, all the cheerfulness, all the maturity, etc., etc. He's able to, to make all, what, I mean, he says all, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. He's able to give you all that. And he will give you all that if you're his and we believe that he is we are his through baptism and through christ's loving sacrifice god is able then and will answer the prayer of a, of a man a righteous man who says i don't have any generosity in my heart make me generous god will grant that prayer he'll give you that 
God, I don't have any money to give. Grant me some money that I can give. Okay, God will grant that prayer. I need a redeemed imagination to believe in you, Lord, that you're a benevolent father. God can grant that prayer. And then Paul does what I love about Paul. He gives you a proof text about all these things. And he starts quoting the Old Testament. In fact, he quotes Psalm 112. Here it is. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, depending on um, how you read the word he, the pronoun he in that verse, you can be hearing Paul say two different things. We read Psalm 112, so we know what the psalmist is saying. Psalmist is talking about a righteous man who distributes freely. But as Paul's quoting it, it almost seems like he's saying, this is what God does. Is Paul misquoting the psalmist? Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. That's how the psalm starts. Who greatly delights in his commandments. What are God's commands? In the psalmist context, it would be the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Um, and in our context, it would be the commands of Christ to us in the New Covenant. Would, would giving, would tithing be included in the fear of Yahweh? Absolutely, yes, it would. The Old Covenant believer was required to pay a tithe, to bring a tribute offering to the Lord. Why? Because he feared the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. The psalmist relates all the blessings of God in the good life and all the elements of the good life to the fear of Yahweh and cheerful obedience of his command. Think about all the things that come up in that song or that psalm as we read it or sang it. You'll have mighty offspring, you'll have wealth, enduring righteousness, mercy, you'll have light, you'll have generosity, you'll have justice, enduring, you'll be, your mem the memory of you will endure, you'll be bold and fearless, you'll have a steady heart, and then in verse 9, the, the verse that Paul quotes, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn is exalted in honor. See what Paul's doing here? He's not misquoting the Bible. He's not being a tricksy with the scriptures. He's layering truth upon truth. It's glorious. He's proof texting to the Corinthians, and he's talking about the righteous man, but he's also talking about a certain righteous man. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And the God that inspired Psalm 112 to be written can do the things written in Psalm 112 toward you. He's layering truth. The psalmist is profiling a righteous man, but Paul is profiling a righteous God. Look at the next verse, verse 10. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul's talking about the seed giver, the bread giver. The psalmist is talking about the righteous man. Paul's layering those two truths on top of each other and saying something more glorious. Here's how we reconcile it. 
In the old covenant, in the old covenant worship model, the worshiper never shows up empty-handed. Think about it. If he's coming to give a sin offering, he's bringing an animal with him for the burnt offering. If he's coming to give a tribute offering to the Lord of some kind, he brings grain or bread or whatever the, the law required. But he doesn't show up empty-handed. Never. Either it's a sacrificial animal or it's some kind of contribution. The Old Covenant, in other words, is this economic system where the, the system, by way of example, teaches the worshiper that his heart is connected to his wealth. Here's, here's a, just a quick quote from the very end of 2 Samuel. This is the second to last verse in 2 Samuel. But the king, talking about David now, but the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh, my God, that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. That sums up the economy of the old covenant. David was like, I'm not going to take a gift from you and then give it to Yahweh as if it's mine. I'll buy it from you and then I'll contribute to Yahweh. The worshiper in the old covenant enters into the presence of a holy God by means of substitute that he's brought from his flock or from his wealth. And this all points us to Jesus who made an offering to God completely empty-handed. When, when Jesus offered himself on the cross, what did he have in his hands? He had nothing. What did he have on his body? Nothing. It was stripped from him. Everything was taken from him. And he comes to the cross with only one thing, his body, himself, his blood. See what Paul's doing? Jesus comes to the cross with nothing in hand. The Old Testament worshiper comes with all these things in their hand, pointing to Jesus, the true righteous man. Hey, let me just, let me just show you from Hebrews real quick. Hebrews 10. Really, really fast. I'll read a couple of verses here. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently then, Christ came into the world. He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered in accordance with the law. He then added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does not take away the first, or sorry, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Paul is saying this. He's saying Jesus Christ is the ultimate righteous man of Psalm 112. Psalm 112 is talking about Jesus. Now, of course, it's talking about us too. If we live the life of Christ, if we live redeemed by Christ, we can be like the man of Psalm 112, but Christ ultimately fills Psalm, fulfills Psalm 112. He is the rich man who has distributed freely to the poor. What has he distributed? His own blood. And who are the poor people? That's us. He's given us himself. Us, his people. 
He doesn't just give himself also in some spiritual way. He does, but not only in some spiritual way. He also provides us life and health, seed and bread, to make us productive in the here and now. Paul is layering. When he says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. You Corinthians should be like this, but you can only be like this if you are in union with the one who is this, who is the ultimate example, the ultimate fulfillment of this truth. We are the poor. He is the rich man. He distributes to us freely so that we become rich, so that we can distribute to others freely. That's what Paul is saying. We're enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You could put the word in Christ in that whole verse there, and it would say it like this. We are enriched in every way in Christ to be generous in every way in Christ. So this is the ministry of this service, Paul says. God has enriched us spiritually and practically to share through Jesus and become, like him, generous. To become generous men. But then one more thing he's done that Paul points out that makes this whole thing come full circle. God has also allowed for, for in the church, shortfalls and hard times. The Jerusalem church apparently had fallen on hard times. They were coming up short. Their budget was not being fulfilled, in other words, in some way. They needed outside help. God had allowed that. Why? So that the people of Corinth, out of their generosity, might give. And there's this then reciprocating thanksgiving to God that's built up between the two churches. There was some kind of famine or persecution or some kind of hardship. God allowed it. And then it presented an opportunity for these Christians now to supply the need of those Christians. They had previously promised to do so. Now it was the time to do it. That's why Paul is writing. He's writing to be sure they fulfill their promise. But in the right way. Remember, he's very particular about how. Why? He wants them built up. He's not focusing on the duty they have to fulfill their promise. They do have a duty. They said they were going to do this. They, they gave their word. They need to fulfill their word. But that's not what he's focused on. He's focused on thanksgiving and glory. I'll read verses 12 and 13. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, this gift that you're going to give, their approval of it, their accepting of it, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. It's a reciprocating thing. One church has abundance, the other church has need. The church with abundance generously gives, and then this church returns that back in thanksgivings to God and prayers for the, for the generous church. That's what verse 14 says. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. When the Corinthians do their duty in the right way, 
They edify the church by producing many thanksgivings to God. The Corinthians' submission to the Jerusalem church by the giving of money will cause them to glorify God. The Jerusalem church will say something like this to the, to the other church. Look how gracious, or they'll say this when they receive the gift. Look how gracious God has been to the Corinthians. He's given them so much grace and provision that they are able to cheerfully share it with us in our time of need. Thanks be to God. Paul finishes this entire section then with one little short prayer. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That's verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Apparently for Paul, it's impossible for him to fully express what God is doing in this dynamic of giving between the two churches. It's inexpressible. I can't even tell you, Paul says, what's going on here. It's so glorious. It's so layered in truth. It's so much the, the, the fulfilling of Psalm 112 that the psalmist could never have envisioned that's happening here and now. All he can do is express his gratitude for the gift itself. But he's not just saying, I express my gratitude for the gift. He's saying, thanks be to God for the Corinthians giving the financial gift. But he's also saying, thanks be to God for creating this whole generous economy of need and gift and prayer and thanksgiving that reciprocatingly benefits the, Christ, the church of Christ. God has created this. He's the one that created the need. He's the one that created the abundance. And he created the, the apostle Paul to come and teach, here's how, this is, here's how this economy of Christ works. And when you do it like this, it becomes Psalm 112. It becomes this picture of this glorious man, this glorious, bountiful, wealthy man who's distributing freely to the poor and becoming the picture of new covenant Christ in the world. So what do we do with all this? First, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to apply it in two ways, apply uh, the passage in two ways. I had the privilege, like Jeff Swanson, to go on a TLI trip a few years ago. Jeff's in India right now. I went to Liberia, a very poor country on the west coast of Africa. And one of the privileges of going on these TLI trips, you get to teach, but you also get to go to church if, you, if you're there during the Lord's Day. And I got to go to a Liberian church where I was the sole white person in a group of Liberian worshipers. Pastor Anthony Flomo was the pastor. He let me preach that Sunday, kind of like I'm doing now. And they gave me this seat of honor on the stage, like this, it was almost like a, a wooden chair. Every other chair was plastic. This is a wooden chair. And they put the fan directly on, it was 85 degrees every day there, 80, 89 degrees. They put the fan directly on me. And electricity is not cheap there. They have a generator that's just for that fan and the lights. Anyway, it was a weird, strange, glorious experience. One of the most glorious I've ever experienced worshiping in another church. But probably the most interesting, thought-provoking, heart-wrenching part of the whole service was the offering. They had a collection. And what they would do is they would take uh, these little trash can size laundry baskets 
and they were, it was red, green, and yellow, like the stoplight, red, green, and yellow. And each basket was set out on the, on the, like on the stage there. And the people would get up during this song, this very raucous song, uh, upbeat African praise song. And they would walk by and they would drop their money in whichever basket they were giving. One, one was for the building fund, one was for the benevolent ministry, and one was for the budget. And I don't remember which color was which. And this is going on, it goes on for about 15 minutes because the pastor spent five minutes at least before they started all this exhorting the people on how they should give. And I can remember the biggest point he made was you need to be saving your American dollars to give here. Your Liberian dollars are good, that's okay, but save your American dollars, especially those $5 bills for the offering plate. The, the, the uh, what do you call it, the exchange rate was about 150 to one. So an, a Liberian dollar is worth less than a penny to us. Anyway, they come up, these very happy people, very poor people comparatively to us, come up and they drop their wadded up money into the offering plate. And here I am standing at the stage, you know, kind of doing my white guy dance, uh, trying, to, trying to not be too uh, conspicuous. And I realized I have to give an offering. And I had prepared to bring money for the offering, but I didn't have anything less than a $20 bill, which to me is kind of like a eh, $20 bill, you know, no big deal. But to them, it's probably more money than is all in all the bags put together. And I'm thinking, how do I walk up there and give this money without exposing myself as this wealthy person and offending people and letting my left hand know what my right hand, how do I do this? And, you know, I'm standing there wondering, and it seems like the, the musicians are winding down and I realize I have to do it. And there's this little kid that comes up and gives some money. And so I walk over there really quick, kind of on beat, and I, I wad up the money and I drop it in. And then they come and they take the baskets and they go out because I guess they realized I put a lot of money in there because I'm a wealthy American. And uh, they exit and they take the money and I don't know what they did with it. I assume they did the work of the church. But the, the lesson to me during this whole event was how, first of all, how wealthy I am. And I'm not wealthy in American sense, but in worldwide sense, all of us are the richest people in the world here. I don't care if you're on welfare, you're wealthier than every Liberian that exists, except maybe three, the president and the cabinet, about the only people that have more money than you. And that might not be true. And me giving the $20 was not a big deal. It was a big deal to them, but to me it was no big deal. Them giving the one Liberian dollar, which is less than a penny of our money, was a big deal. And it just struck me as how cheerful these people were, how much they loved the Lord. Um, how rudimentary that their worshiping surroundings were, but they didn't care. It's a dirt floor. Um, it was a, a kerosene generator, a couple of lights, a couple of fans. God loves a cheerful giver. So how should we apply this? Two ways. Saints, God loves cheerful givers. And if you're not one, he wants you to grow up into one. But a certain kind of immature person might hear me say that, might hear Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 9, and they immediately think, oh, now I've got to start giving. I've not been giving, and now I've got to start. No, the scriptures don't call you to be that kind of giver. A slavishly 
tortured conscience, indebted, obligated giver. God doesn't want that. God's able to make all grace abound to you. If that's your heart attitude, you haven't understood me, you haven't understood Paul, and you should not give that way. If you're a member of this church, or just a regular attender, and you don't give, you need to start giving. Not out of obligation or slavishly. You are obligated. You are a slave of Christ. But Paul says, God doesn't need or want your payback. You can't pay him back. You can't pay back the blood of Christ. You don't have anything that you can offer that's equal to the blood of Christ. His hands were empty, and no matter how full your hands are, you can't pay him back. Don't try to do that. God wants a hilarious giver. He wants a cheerful giver. He wants a cheerful, righteous man who in union with Christ becomes like Psalm 112 and distributes freely because the Lord Jesus Christ has distributed to him freely. He desires a man, woman, who has because of a mature understanding of all Christ has done and fulfilled in the new covenant cannot but cheerfully give out of their abundance. That's what God wants. That's, a, that's application number one. Application number two. If you're a member or a regular attender and you've been given wholeheartedly, I'm sorry, if you've been given hard-heartedly, I couldn't read my notes. If you've been giving in a hard-hearted way, stop it. Go back to Psalm 112. Relearn how to give from a generous heart and then give. Go back to the gospel and relearn how Christ gave everything he had in his poverty so that we might become rich in his grace. That's actually a verse that comes the chapter before one, the one we read. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what Paul is saying. Saints, I want you to be cheerfully exuberant givers. That's the title of the message. Cheerfully exuberant. Put off your refusal to give if you have been refusing. Realize that Christ has generously distributed to you and become like Christ, the righteous one, worshipfully, generously giving to his church. If you've been giving cheerfully for many years, I say to you, well done. Give thanks to God who has shed his love abroad in your heart and continue to go and grow in cheerful exuberance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're gracious to us in ways that we do not fathom, often forget, and ignore. We pray that you, through your word, daily, weekly, through the worship in this place, remind us of your exuberance to us, so that we might become an exuberant people. Grant us the kingdom. Grant us Psalm 112. Make us see Christ as the ultimate righteous man who distributes freedom and make us into people that distribute. And now we pray. Exhortation I'll read from Leviticus 9, starting at verse 15. Then Aaron brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it and offered it for sin, like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. 
Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar besides the burnt sacrifice of the morning. Thus far the reading of God's word. At the center of the pattern of sacrificial worship in Leviticus 9 was the burnt offering. We call it consecration in our bulletin. The whole animal is burnt, picturing our whole lives offered up to God. And alongside that was a grain offering that the worshiper also brought, part of his tithe and offering. Think of it this way, Christ is the sacrificial animal, and we are also put on the altar with him in the form of our offerings, the fruit of our labor. One detail in our worship service you may have not have noticed is that when we sing and the deacon brings the offering up, they put it on the communion table right here. There's a reason why we do that. It seems kind of odd, seems maybe even wrong to you to put a pile of money on the table with the bread and the wine. Isn't that kind of strange? But it fits with this pattern. We are meant to see Christ offered up to God for us on the altar, and our lives also laid there alongside him, united with him, to die and rise with Christ. So as God has generously given to us, we give back to him our whole selves. Romans 8 says it well, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So we come to the table now. These are gifts of God for the people of God. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As we partake of the bread and wine, we're acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.